We've been working on a study in the book of Job for the past several weeks now, and uh, we're starting in chapter 13 this morning. The title of the me- message is Job Probes the Nature of Life, a first part of a two-part presentation of Job's uh, response to his friends. Now, I want to start this morning by asking you a question that is probably a very stupid question, probably stupider than most of the questions I ask you. But here's the question. When you squeeze a lemon, what comes out of it? See, now that's what I thought you'd say. You'd say a, a normal, rational thinking person would say that what comes out of a lemon when it's squeezed is lemon juice. But that's something we assume to be true. That may or may not be true. What comes out of a lemon is whatever is inside the lemon when it's squeezed. Now, what I read is I read that there are some scientists somewhere who are doing this study, and they're injecting lemons with certain substances to see how they react to the acid in the lemon. So when those lemons are squeezed, what comes out of those lemons is what's ever put into the lemon when the scientists are doing whatever they're doing. Now, as far as I'm concerned, these guys have way too much time on their hands, but that's a whole other story. What this does illustrate for us is this. Uh, God uses trials to reveal to us what's inside of us. God uses trials to squeeze us and find out what's inside when he squeezes. When a person makes a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they give the outward appearance that they are living for him and are totally surrendered to him, we can never assume what's going on inside that person. Just because they're here in church on a Sunday morning or because they talk about the Lord outside of here doesn't necessarily reveal what's inside them on a daily basis. Uh, the only real way to tell what's inside a person and what kind of commitment they have to the Lord Jesus Christ is to see what's produced from them when they're squeezed. When the, when the pressure's on, what re, what's revealed from them? How a person responds to trial is a great way to assess the depth of their commitment to the Lord and their faith in Jesus Christ. What you have here in the book of Job, I'm sure you're aware of this, what you have in the book of Job is Job is being squeezed. And he's being squeezed hard, uh, probably harder than any person that has been squeezed outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What has come out of Job so far has been exactly what God expected to come out, exactly what God said would occur. Uh, Job is going through this intense trial, but in, in spite of that, he has remained completely committed to the Lord even through the trial. What he professed so many years on the outside is now being shown to exist as strongly on the inside. And in chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Job, Job is completing his response to Zophar, the third of his three friends. And this fellow, as the other two, have have attacked him in the midst of his grief. Going to look at chapter 13 this week, look at chapter 14 next week. As we go through this, I want to caution you about something, because you're going to hear Job saying some things that may concern you if you don't have the right perspective. Don't ever make the mistake of assuming that there's a conflict between our confession of faith in God and a confession about the futility of life, feeling like life really has no meaning or no purpose at times. Uh, It's the immature believer who seeks for a life that is free of problems and difficulties, who seeks to make deals with God to avoid hard times. Uh, Mature believers understand that we are living in a fallen world that has been hopelessly damaged by sin. You see the evidence and the effects of sin all around you. It is unmistakable what sin has done to this world. And because we live in this world, we can't help but be influenced by the effects of the sin around us. And that means we live in this life dealing with the evil and with the good as well. We deal with the evil and enjoy the good. But it is also the mature believer who, like Job, rises above the effects of sin, accepts a trial, but also comes out of that trial stronger than they were when they went in. That is the goal of trial, folks. Come out of this thing better than you were when you went into it. That is God's plan for it. Amen. And so this morning we want to begin in verses 1 through 12 uh, as we look at the charges against his counselors. 
Job's charges against his counselors. Look at verse 1, if you would, chapter 13, verse 1. He says, Lo, mine eye hath seen all this, mine ear hath heard and understood it. What ye know, the same do I know also, I am not inferior unto you. What Job says here is, you've not told me anything I don't already know. You've gone through the same stuff I've heard. Uh, these fellows pride themselves on having great spiritual insight. Really nothing more than common knowledge at that time. And so what Job is simply saying to them is they have not told him anything that he hasn't already known himself. No new information has been presented. And so look what he says in verse 3. He says, surely I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to reason with God. You fellows have had no good to me whatsoever. I've not learned anything from you. Job says, what I really want to do, I want to talk to God himself. I want to talk to God about this tragedy I'm going through and get God's perspective on what's going on. What Job realizes is the only court of appeals he can go to that's going to make any difference whatsoever is the court where God is. That's the only place he's going to find the answers that he seeks. His friends have not told him anything new, also can do nothing to help him with what he's dealing with in this trial. And I do think there are times when believers are too ready to run to a friend or to a pastor or to a parent or to some other individual in times of trial. There's nothing basically wrong with doing that. Please hear me. That's not a wrong thing to do. Those are all good places to go, appropriate resources to use when we're struggling. But those are not the first things we need to do. What we need to do first before we do anything else is spend our time talking to God, Amen. finding out what he can reveal to us and seek his mercy in the time of this difficulty. Those folks around you are helpful, can be helpful, they want to be helpful, but they can never do for us what God, what the God of the universe can do for us, that God who loves us beyond what we could ever conceive, uh, what he can do for us as we go to him. So go to him first. Others may help. Go to him first. Look at verse 4. He says to his friends, but ye are forgers of lies. Ye are all physicians of no value. Job has become aware all the way through this trial that these friends have been no help to him whatsoever. He has gotten no relief from his pain and his suffering in spite of what they've said to him. They've not even made an attempt to help him. All they really wanted to do is accuse him for the trial he's going through. So what Job says again is this, I want to talk to God directly. I want to talk to him. I want to go to the source. I want to go to the great physician who can heal me and restore me. Now, when you look at these three friends, sadly, we see ourselves in these three friends to some degree. There's not one person in this room who can solve the trial of any other person in this room. Amen. We can't do it. Some may see themselves as having great skills, great insight, able to provide great help to those who are in need. But in fact, we are helpless to bring comfort to that one who is struggling, and we certainly have no answers for them. So you say, what do we do? <laughs> Point them to God. Amen. Point them to God. We can show them what he says to them in his word, how he can comfort them and love them and support them. And then we pray for them in that end. Now, the lost world and sadly, even some believers in time of need run to the gods of education or religion or science to help them. Hopefully they'll find help there in those places. They seek for words of wisdom and find, try to find hope in those things. Hope they can give answers to them that make sense of what they're going through. And even as those institutions promise the answers to life are found there, like Job's friends, they're actually physicians of no value. Those places provide no help and no comfort in time of need. Many times when trouble comes, we want to seek help from the things that we can see. Uh, people or institutions offer help, and we place our trust there, hoping that what mankind offers can help resolve our situation. 
I know you know this. I think it's worth saying every so often, the things of the world can never provide complete help for us. The world can't do it. It's not equipped to do it. Those methods may provide momentary relief, but it doesn't last. The only real place to find relief in times of trial, in times of difficulty, is in the arms of your Savior. And running to the latest book, or to the most popular podcast, or to the latest Christian author, or celebrity, or the charismatic preacher, or following some recent uh, spiritual formula, they will never provide complete relief. They can't do it. Relief is found only as we place our faith completely and fully in the mercy and the love of the God who saved you and cares more for you than you can ever imagine. Anything else we do in times of difficulty is a temporary fix that's going to provide momentary relief. And we need to find, when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, we need to stop and assess this. Where am I putting my trust? As I go through this thing, where am I trying to find my resource of help and peace and comfort? Where am I finding the rest that I need? And folks, the only place to find refuge is in Jesus Christ. And it's possible as we go through our difficulties, we may need to refocus at times and get our eyes back on him so that we are seeking comfort from the one who can truly provide it for us and not to physicians of no value because they're all over the place out there offering all kinds of things and they can't do it. Jesus Christ can do it. Jesus Christ can do it. Now look at verse 5. He said, oh, that you would altogether hold your peace. Now, that's Job's polite way of saying, well, just shut up, <laughs> and it should be your wisdom. Hear now my reasoning, and hearken to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God, and talk deceitfully uh, for him? Will you accept his person? Will ye contend for God? What Job says is, and what he's complaining about, is these friends of his believe they can speak for God. And Job is right. That's exactly what these fellows think they're doing. They think they can speak in God's behalf. Now, that's a common approach for believers to take in this day and age. We need to be very careful as believers we don't make that same mistake. We are to be God's spokesman. That is very different from speaking for God. Uh, that is very different from speaking as though we have the right or the ability to speak in God's place. When somebody is going through a trial, oftentimes many believers will go to that brother or sister who's struggling, and you would think they had a direct line to God and that he communicates his thoughts directly through them. They go to that person appearing like they have all the answers to whatever the concern is and that God is in full agreement with whatever they say. Now, this may be a surprise to some. God does not need us to speak for him. He doesn't need it. He does not need us to act as an intermediary between him and some other believer. Folks, God has already spoken. He's already said what he needs to say. It's all there for us. Uh, he has given us a book with every word that he wanted to speak recorded within the pages of that book. God has said all he needs to say. I want to tell you, folks, there is no other revelation besides the word of God. Amen. I don't care what you hear on the radio or on TV or online or wherever you hear it. There is no other revelation outside of the word of God in this day and age. Amen. That's where the revelation comes from, right there in that book. And anything outside of this book is from somewhere else. It's not from him. God has given us that book. And by the way, God has given every believer the same book with the same words and the same message. And therefore, every believer can get into that book and find out what God has to say for themselves. We have no right whatsoever to privately interpret the word of God. No, We have no right whatsoever to speak some word of prophecy that God has given to us in addition to his word. We have no right to twist his words or change his words to make them say what we want them to say so that they agree with what we think. 
My responsibility and your responsibility to others is simply to speak what has already been spoken and allow the Spirit of God to apply those words to the heart of that one who is seeking help. The best thing you can do when somebody's going through a trial is give them the Word of God. (laughs) Speak the Word of God to them. Because I know this. When you go through a difficult time, sometimes it's difficult to get into that book. Satan puts that wall up and it's hard to fight through it. What they need is some other believer to come along and give that word to them. That word, not your words, that word. <laughs> That's what they need. They need to hear from God. And that book is the, the way God speaks to us. Our responsibility is to do that. Uh, many Christians want to diagnose the problem of somebody else on their own and then pull out some scripture to support whatever they've decided is going on. That's exactly what Job's three friends are doing. They decide that the reason for Job, the reason why Job is suffering is because he has some secret sin. And now they're pulling out all the godly wisdom they have to prove that point. And that, folks, is misusing the Word of God. Amen. Now, believers in the 21st century may be more subtle about it, but they do the exact same thing. They may couch it in spiritual talk. They may say something like, God has impressed, me to, uh, impressed upon me to say this to you. I need to tell you what he's been leading me to say. Or I want to tell you what the Lord has told me about your situation. And then in Jesus' name, they pour out their bitterness and their venom and their malice all over that one who's going through a difficulty, that one they supposedly are trying to help. That approach does not please God. That's not the approach that works. That approach, to my mind, is sin. No believer is given the role or the right to speak for God. We are not called upon to take his place. God calls upon us to use his word to encourage and to assist and maybe even to confront other people, but to use that book to accomplish our own intentions or to present our own personal point of view, that's sin. That's misusing God's word. That's using the word of God deceitfully, as Paul said. Any believer who does that, I believe, will be held accountable for that when they meet God face to face. So in verses 9 through 12, Job makes four separate charges against his friends. Look at verse 9. He says, is it good that he should search you out? Or as one man mocketh another, do ye so mock him? He accuses them of mocking God. Look at verse 10. He will surely reprove you if you do search secretly except persons. In verse 10, he accuses them of secretly accepting others, of being impressed with other people. Look at verse 11. Shall not his excellency make you afraid and his dread fall upon you? He accuses them of not fearing God. And then finally in verse 12, your remembrances are like unto ashes, your bodies to bodies of clay. He accuses them of forgetting that they're mortal, that they exist in mortal bodies, bodies of clay that will someday return to ashes. Whatever the intentions of their friend, of his friends were, they have lost their perspective. And the result is there are no help to Job whatsoever, no help at all. And because we have an active sin nature, that can happen to anybody in this room. Folks, we can lose our perspective if we're not careful. We can begin to think that we have all the answers and that we can present those answers in a way that God will agree with it. That is simply not the way to do it. Whenever we begin to see ourselves as more than what we really are, we become useless in the service to God. God talks over and over in that book about pride and keeping ourselves uh, lowly. And that exactly is what we need to do if we're going to be effective and in in being used by God to do his work. Now, from verse 13 through the end of the chapter, we hear Job's confession of faith. Job's confession of faith. And there are several parts to this confession that he makes. First, Job speaks of his carnality. He's sitting on this ash heap. His life is in ruin. And I want you to make this picture. He is sitting there beaten down and discouraged and almost given up. 
and suddenly he springs to life. He responds to these accusations of his friends uh, that, that they've made to him. And before any of them can say a word, Job seizes control of the situation, as painful as it has been. He's listened to what they had to say. And now he's not going to give them any opportunity whatsoever to speak until he has had his final say. And that begins in verse 13. Look at what he says. He says, hold your peace. Let me alone that I may speak and let me come on. Let come on me what will. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? What's he saying? He is saying this flesh that that I'm dealing with is my flesh. This is not your flesh. It's mine. It is my life that's been affected. You've had all had your turn to talk. You've all had your turn to say what you want to say. Now Job says, it's my turn to speak. And with that, look at verse 15. He says there, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain my own ways before him. That is a classic verse in the book of Job. That is a great confession there in the first half of that verse. Uh, The second half shows us something else about Job's nature. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But in the past, Job has expressed what he believes to be uh, the futility of life. He's been in despair over how life seems to have no purpose. And yet, even as he expresses his awareness of life's futility, he says, I will continue to maintain my trust in the Almighty God. Now, get a hold of that, folks. Get a hold of that, because that is foreign to typical 21st century Christianity. You're not hearing much of that these days from most places. One of the great changes that has occurred in the church today is the church has become mostly about accommodation. Accommodation. Many churches in this day exist to do whatever they can do to keep people happy and content. The cry of the church in the past centuries has been, Lord, whatever it takes. Now the cry of the typical church member is, Lord, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? It's become a very self-focused situation as it has been across our society and has infiltrated the church as well. So in order to keep people coming, in order to keep the offerings coming, the church has bought into this new philosophy. In order to keep people in this day and age coming to church, they need to be offered beautiful buildings and parking places close to the church and spotless nurseries and services that are entertaining and also time sensitive. They want 45 minutes of music, they want 20 minutes of of preaching, and they want to do that one time a week, and that's all they're asking for. And if those guidelines aren't followed, then the people simply will find a church that does follow those guidelines. And so what churches do these days, many churches do, is they uh, try to uh, accommodate all those different needs, all those different things. And what is interesting to me is with all the accommodations that have occurred over the past years, to me it does not seem like the church is any stronger than it was in times before. (laughs) We've taken this approach to make everybody happy and content, and the church has weakened as a result of that. It has not become more effective in accomplishing the Great Commission. Churches have made people who attend happy and satisfied to the point where nobody has much of a desire to move out and do anything. (laughs) They're happy to stay in one place and just be satisfied and be fed and nothing else. Uh, They've been made to feel way too comfortable in church, to be disturbed. Uh, Job would not fit into the modern church today. That's not Job's philosophy. I want you to see Job's character expressed in that verse. He says there again, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, he says, yet will I trust him, no matter what the cost, no matter what I lose, no matter how uncomfortable life becomes, I will still trust him. I'll never turn my back on him, even if it comes to death. I'll maintain my faith. I'll maintain my commitment to him, regardless of what the trial brings me. 
Or to put it another way, I'll live my life all for Jesus, whatever he wants. Now, folks, I want to stop here for a moment. And I want to take a time of self-evaluation. Can you say what Job said just now? Is that your thought? Is that where you're at? Can you say, Lord, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. No matter what you bring into my life, no matter how bad it may be, no matter how difficult life may become, I will stay committed to you. Amen. That's what he's saying. To the point Job says, God can kill me and I'll stay faithful to him. I'll still trust him. Now, the reason I'm making such a point of that is because that, again, is not the philosophy of the church today at large. That's not where people are. People are not saying Although, even if he kills me, I'll stay faithful. People are saying, if it's not convenient for me, I'll go somewhere else. The problem with church today, folks, is that people are just too comfortable. And I think it's a nice that we have this nice building. I praise God for it. I'm glad it's air-conditioned in the summertime. I'm glad it's heated in the wintertime. I'm glad we have a level of comfort here. But that shouldn't matter at all. If we were meeting out in the desert somewhere with flies all over us, we still should be faithful to God in doing what he's called us to do. Amen. I was in church back in 2001, 2002, I believe, down in Argentina. In Argentina, those church buildings have no window screens. They just open the air and no door. You just walk in. And there's bugs in Argentina and there's mosquitoes in Argentina. And they fly over you all during that service. And here I am sitting in this service. I am no, speak, don't speak a lick of Spanish, so they're talking a language I don't understand, sitting with mosquitoes biting me while I'm watching this service go on. <laughs> and you know what? That place was full. There was standing room only in that place. They didn't care about the mosquitoes. They didn't care about the heat. No air conditioning whatsoever. And they couldn't care less. Though you slay me, yet I'll trust you. Amen. America's lost that yes. in many places. I wonder if we didn't have a nice building like this if you'd be here this morning. I wonder if we're meeting somewhere where it's cold and you had to wear your coat. I wonder if you'd be here. (laughs) It doesn't take much, folks, I'm afraid, to make many Christians dissatisfied and uh, find other places to be. You know why people turn their backs on their faith and maybe even turn their backs on church? Typically, it's because things don't go their way. That is always true. That's not always true, but often it is. Uh, the preacher has to preach what they wanted to preach. They have to be acknowledged for what they're doing. If they feel ignored or slighted in any way, that opens the door for them to move to a different church or maybe move away from their faith altogether. And so they send a text to the pastor's wife or they call some other church member and let them know why they're moving on. All because things weren't going their way. Amen. Hey, have you read the book of Job? Things weren't going his way. <laughs> Not the life he would have chosen at all. Not at all. But I don't hear Job saying anywhere in there, all right, God, if that's the way you're going to handle things, if that's the way you're going to do it, I'm just going to check out for a while. And when things start going my way again, when I start feeling more comfortable again, when I start getting the attention I deserve, then I'll consider serving you again. I don't hear that anywhere in there. What Job is saying is, Lord, even if it comes to death, Even if you kill me, I will continue to trust you. No matter what happens, I will stay by the stuff and stay faithful to the place where you have put me. I want to tell you something, folks. If we had 50 people with that attitude like Joe's, we could turn this community upside down for Jesus Christ. Doesn't take many. It just takes committed people to do it. 
And we will never have our uh, impact this world like we want to impact this world if we remain focused on our needs and our comfort and on what we want. Christ's work is done only by people who are completely sold out, whose needs are secondary to the work of the Lord, whose feelings are not hurt when things don't go their way, who will accept discomfort and pain and ridicule so that by their commitment, God's work can be accomplished. I thought it'd get quiet. Christ's work. Talking to myself as well. Sabaka, hear this. Christ's work will only be done by people who are sold out completely to him. Where nothing else gets in the way but serving him. I'm not mad at anybody this morning. It's just time for us to hear some of this stuff. (laughs) Time for me to hear it. If we are sold out, God can use us. If we're not sold out, God can't use us like he wants to use us. Amen. And that's the bottom line to it. Sabaka, hear it. <laughs> Job was sold out. Though he slay me, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, I wish Job would have stopped there. But Job didn't stop there. And sometimes, you know, we just talk a little too much, go a little too far, and we walk ourselves into trouble. And that's what Job does. Because Job says, look at the second half of that verse, verse 15. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but but I will maintain mine own ways before him. Now, I think what Job is trying to say here is, there's no hidden sin in my life that's causing this trial. But he is coming dangerously close to trusting his own personal righteousness in God's presence instead of holding on to God's grace alone. And if Job had any spiritual problem in his life, it was his tendency to take pride in the good moral life that he lived. Now, I want to tell you, a good moral life is commendable, and we should all live as clean and moral a life and sinless a life as we possibly can before God. But we can take no pride in that when we do that. When we avoid sin, it's not because of our innate goodness. (laughs) That's not it at all. If we avoid sin, it is because of the power of the Spirit of God living inside us. Not one believer in this room, not one believer listening today has the power in and of themselves to defeat sin. Your sin nature won't allow that. Amen. So we can take no pride when we do it. We give God all the credit when we choose not to yield to temptation. Now, the problem that Job is struggling with here is very similar to the problem that we have. What I found true in my own life, and I'm assuming true in your life as well, we are very good at trusting God in the long term. We can trust God for salvation. We're okay that God has our salvation in his hand and it's all taken care of. Our difficulty, and maybe I should say my difficulty oftentimes, is trusting God in the short term. I've got eternity covered. I have a difficulty placing my faith in him sometimes for tomorrow and for next week. And so what we do is we place our faith in him for the long term and maintain our own ways before him in the short term. Lord, you handle the salvation. I'll figure out how to get myself through this mess. Lord, you handle my salvation. I'll figure out a way to get through this trial. And I'll trust my own ways to somehow resolve it. Now, here's the only way to live the Christian life, the complete Christian life. And I hope you'll hear this this morning. If you hear nothing else, hear this. The only way to live the complete Christian life is to allow God to have control over all of it. (laughs) All of it. Not one part held on for yourself. The only way to live the Christian life completely and totally the way God wants to is say, Lord, it's all yours. All for Jesus. It's all yours. 
if I, what I need to do in my life, I'm assuming what you need to do in your life is let go of your ways and allow God to maintain his ways in all of our lives. The whole package. No other approach will ever work and God can't use us as long as we're holding on to something. Look at verse 16. He shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Hear diligently my words and my declaration with your ears. Behold now, I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. Who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. Now, what he's confessing here is his saving faith in God. Uh, Job is confident that he is not a hypocrite and begs his friends to hear what he's saying to them. And Job simply declares he cannot keep quiet any longer in the midst of this trial that he's experiencing. And once that is said, from verse 20 to verse 25, he begins to speak of the conditions that he wants to place upon God. (laughs) The conditions he wants to place upon God. Look at verse 20. Now he's speaking to God here. Only do not two things unto me, then I will not hide myself from thee. Withdraw thine hand far from me, and let not thy dread make me afraid. Then then call thou, and I will answer, or let me speak, and answer thou me. Now, folks, I'm sorry to say there is the fleshly nature of Job in all its glory. And we've all got it. So we're not coming down on Job for something that we don't all do ourselves. There is Job's fleshly interest revealed in the two conditions he's asking for God. What he's trying to do there is make a deal with God. He's trying to make a deal with God. Uh, God, stop the tribulation that you've allowed in my life. And then God, speak to me. Or else, let me talk to you. I'm going to ask you some questions, and you answer me what I what the, the questions that I'm asking. God, I'm going to speak to you, or God, you speak to me, and tell me what you're doing in this trial. And then Job realizes God has not spoken to him. And so he begins to question God about this trial. Look at verse 23. How many are mine iniquities and my sin, and, and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Now again, Job is making a point here. He is maintaining there is no secret sin in his life that's causing these trial. But he's asking God to make sure he hasn't missed something along the way. So God, reveal anything to me that I may have missed. Now I like that. David did the same thing. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 23, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me ask you a question. Are you brave enough to pray that prayer? (laughs) Are you brave enough to pray, Lord, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and if there's any wicked way in me, leave me out of it. Are you willing to pray that prayer? That's a very bold prayer to pray because you're asking God to search your heart and show you what's wrong. We don't always like to hear that, but it's a good prayer to pray. We all need to do that. It would be wise for all of us. Uh, consistently to pray and ask God to reveal his sin to us. You know why our sin to us? You know why that is? Because you carry this fleshly nature around and you don't always see your sin. You see that behavior through the eyes of that sin nature and it looks just fine to you and fine to me. Sometimes we sin so naturally that we're not aware of it. But God knows all of our sin and God can show us any sin that exists in our lives if we'll ask him to. Look at verse 24. He says, wherefore hidest thou thy face and holdest me for thine enemy? Job, where are you? God, where are you? Where are you? And why have you attacked me like you're attacking me? That is Job's question all the way through. And you know, up to this point, Job has got no answer to that question whatsoever. He keeps asking and God is completely silent. 
Now he asks his final two questions of verse 25. He says, wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro? And wilt thou pursue the dry stubble? The third question, God, haven't you done enough? God, haven't I suffered enough? Have you been there? And you go through that trial and go through that trial and you see no end to it. And don't you sometimes think to yourself, Lord, isn't this enough? Haven't I suffered enough? Haven't you done enough? And the final question he asks is this, Lord, what's left for me to attack, for you to attack? What is left of me for you to attack? Job wants answers to this difficulty he's going through. He tries to make a deal with God to get those answers. But Job learns, as we must also learn, we never make deals with God. God does what he wants to do. He always does what is best for us. God is not obligated. I hate this, by the way. God is not obligated in any way to reveal his ways to me. My flesh struggles with that. I get it spiritually. I know he's, he does this right. I get it. Fleshly, I say, Lord, why couldn't you just let me know what you're doing? God oftentimes, most times, chooses not to do that. What's my responsibility in that thing? Accept what he does and maintain my faith. Accept what he does and maintain your faith in the almighty, all-powerful, all-loving God you serve. And just stay there. All the, The only choice we have. So Job gets no answers. And so in verses 26 through 28, he describes himself as cornered and consumed. Cornered and consumed. Look at verse 26. For thou writest bitter things against me and makest me to possess the iniquities of my youth. You know what Job's saying? Maybe I did something in the past that God's God's punishing me for. Maybe back when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, maybe I did something way back then and God finally became aware of it, finally came around, and God is now punishing me for that sin that I committed way back then. Look at verse 27. Thou puttest my feet also in the stocks and lookest narrowly unto all my paths. Thou settest a print upon the heels of my feet. Job feels like a prisoner. Job's back into a corner. Job says, I can't move. I'm stuck. That trial is all around me. And no matter where I move, there it is. I'm cornered. I'm stuck. I can't go anywhere. And notice the last part of verse 27. He says, thou settest a print upon the heels of my feet. Now, folks, every word of God is important. That's why I love this book. You can find stuff all the way along just by taking note of individual words. Look at the word heel there. The heel. We've uh, talked many times already as we've gone through this study. uh, There are prophetic implications in the book of Job. And one prophetic implication is that Job is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And that's when that heel becomes a very important word. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15? God was talking to the devil and he gave him a promise. What he said there was this. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. And thou shalt bruise his heel. With all the Satan had thrown at the Lord Jesus Christ and at his church, with all the powers of hell at his disposal, all that Satan has been able to do is bruise Jesus Christ's heel. <laughs> Give him a heel ache. That's all he's got. He's done no other damage whatsoever. And instead, it is the Lord who will crush the head of the serpent under his foot. And when that time comes at the second coming, everything's going to be placed under the subjection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything on earth will become submissive under the feet of our Lord. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he hath put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. 
First Corinthians fifteen twenty seven. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he has, when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. What's he saying? All things are under Jesus Christ. He's on top of all of it. You watch what's going on in your world, whether it be internationally, nationally, locally, in your own personal life, whatever that might be, folks. Jesus Christ is over all of it. Amen. Does the world seem like it's going crazy? He's on top of all of it. The world may be going nuts. Jesus Christ is on top of all of it. Amen. In control of all of it. You never have to worry about what's going on in this world. That's why I watch the news. I don't care what's going on in the world. He's over all of it. I worry about my life. I take care of my life and what God calls me to do and all the rest of it can just go where it's going because it's going to go that way anyway. And Jesus Christ has a plan and he's over all of it. You know what uh, uh, God has done right now? Uh, God has marked your heel. Job, God has marked your heel. Right now, Job can see only see what's going on with him in the physical realm. He's only aware of the great attack which has come upon his body. But you see, in reality, uh, Job is an instrument God is using in his battle against Satan. He is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he may have his heel bruised for now. When it's all over and done, Satan will be the one who is defeated. Uh, Jesus Christ came up from that grave victorious over sin. And someday he will permanently destroy the power of the devil. And when all this is done, just as in Job's case, we'll be left standing victorious. Just as Job will come out of this thing standing victorious without cursing God, without losing his integrity, and Satan will be defeated in his attempt to win out over God. Folks, I want to tell you, the whole book of Job is about a battle between God and Satan. And Job is just a tool they're using in that battle. And so the whole idea is to see who wins this battle at the end. Not who wins the battle in Job's case. Who wins the battle between God and the devil. That's what it's really about. Now, folks. I want to tell you something this morning that you may not believe every day. You live in victory this morning. You live in victory this morning. Now, you may not feel very victorious today as you sit here. You may feel the weight of the battle on you. You may feel forgotten and forsaken. You may be like Job and feel cornered and consumed by God. Listen to me this morning. All that Satan can attack is your body. That's all he can touch. He can touch your circumstances around that flesh of yours. That's all he can do. Your soul is safe in God, and your spirit is permanently alive in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already won the victory, and Satan has ultimately been defeated. Amen, amen, and amen. Amen. (laughs) Now, he may win a battle or two, Satan I mean, but we have won the war through Jesus Christ. So in the midst of your battle, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial, please stay focused on the fact that victory is coming. It's coming. Your heel may be bruised for now. You may walk with a limp until you get to heaven. But in the end, Satan's head is going to be crushed. Maintain your faith and wait for the full salvation of God. You see, your victory began when Jesus Christ, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were placed in the winner's circle. The very moment that decision was made and no one outside of Jesus Christ is guaranteed any victory whatsoever. A life without salvation that Jesus Christ provides is a life of complete and total defeat. Defeat here and defeat for all of eternity. Only faith in Jesus Christ gives us a victory that overcomes the world. With all that said, look at verse 28. And he, as a rotten thing, consumeth, as a garment that is moth-eaten. Job says, Lord, I'm being consumed. 
I'm like something rotten. I'm like a garment that the moths have gotten into and just torn up. Now, I like that only because I like what Job, how he expresses it. I'm sure that resonates with many people in this place today. (laughs) I think if anybody has gone through or is going through a severe trial like that, you may feel as though you're nothing to God, like he really doesn't care about you and gives no thought to you at all as to what's happening. Uh, You're in good company. Jesus Christ hung on that cross. And there's a moment where we got a glimpse of his humanity. And in that glimpse of humanity, what does he say to the Father? (laughs) My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's okay to feel forsaken by God at times. He's not forsaken you, but the feeling is real when the flesh takes over for a minute and you feel the pain and the difficulty of that trial. Jesus Christ felt as though the Father had turned his back on him, had no care for him, was untouched by the trial he was going through. His very own son was going through. And yet, from our vantage point, We have the completed record of the word of God. We understand that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon that cross was not an example of God's lack of caring and concern. Rather, Jesus Christ hanging upon that cross is a picture of the immensity of God's love. That's what it's a picture of. Although Jesus Christ may have felt forsaken upon that cross, the fact is that God was demonstrating his great love for his creation by putting his own son through that trial. Love was shown on the cross that day. Love for you and me, that's what the cross was all about. And we must continue to reinforce the fact that God's trials are not an example of God's lack of caring for you. Rather, God's trials are examples of how much God really does care. God wants to do a work in us. God wants to do a work through us. God wants to do a work in somebody else's life through us. And although it goes against everything that we are uh, to admit it, sometimes trial and heartache are the only ways that will accomplish that work. I wish it was different. It's not different. So believer in his love, in his desire to see us, see us and others grow, he puts us through that trial. No reason for the, no matter what the affliction is, no matter the reason for it, God always afflicts us out of his love for us. I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 119, if you would. Psalm 119, and look at verse 75 this morning. You may need this verse. You may be in the midst of a trial this morning. You may be hanging on by a thread. You may need to hear this this morning. Psalm 119, verse 75. Let God talk to you for a minute. Psalm 119, verse 75. Look at what David says there. David going through a difficult time. And he says, Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, I know, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou did me. Lord, I don't like what I'm going through. I don't like what's happening in my life. I wish everything was different. I wish it was all fixed. However, I know, Lord, that your judgments are right and that you, in your faithfulness, are afflicting me right now. Not out of his hatred for you. Not out out of his anger for you. Not because he doesn't care about you. God is afflicting you because God is faithful. God's faithful. Get a hold of it. Because it goes against everything you are in your old sin nature. It goes against everything that you want to believe. (laughs) And Satan will use that trial against you if he can to turn your back on him if he can do it. God never afflicts because he hates us. God never afflicts because he enjoys watching us squirm. God afflicts us out of his faithfulness to us. God afflicts us because of his promise to us. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I know we have a hard time seeing it, folks, and I hope you hear it the way I'm saying it. 
Whatever you're going through this morning, that's God's good work. Amen. It's God's good work. He said, it doesn't feel good. Don't worry about your feelings. Your feelings will fool you. Go to what you know. What the book says is, what you're dealing with right now is God's good work in your life. Is God doing something he can only do by putting you through what he's putting you through? He can only make you what he wants you to be. He can only make you the influence on others that he wants you to be by putting you through what you're going through right now. Trust the promise, folks. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will complete the work, folks. He'll complete it. Now, I know we want it to be completed with good times, without pain, without misery. We want it to stop right now. I get all that. But see, God loves you more than you could ever know. And God understands that sometimes it takes those things to do the work that he wants to do. And so God, as a good father, puts us through the fire, knowing that on the other side, blessing and growth and spiritual maturity and rewards at the judgment seat of Christ will result from that trial. I hope you don't hear this wrong. Your trial is an opportunity. Your trial is an opportunity for you to grow here and to show your love for him and to reveal at the judgment seat of Christ with with gold and silver and precious stones. When the trial comes and you feel like God doesn't care, you feel like you're being consumed, can I get you three words to hold on to? God is love. God loves you. God loves you. In spite of all the difficulty, God loves you. And everything that he allows into your life is for your good or for the good of somebody else. Trust his love. Trust his faithfulness. Endure the trial. And watch what God does in you and through you as a result. You will be amazed. Because he's an amazing God. Let's pray.